doing a series where we're talking about a revolutionary response. If Jesus, uh, if Jesus died a countercultural death, how are we to live a countercultural life? What should our response be? So we've created these uh, luncheons afterwards, lunches provided in child care to facilitate and talk about it. I'd like to invite all of you to come. Last week we had around 30. How many of you were there last week? Okay, so yeah, several of you. To come and be a part of the discussion and actually ask the question, how do we do it? Before we jump into uh, the text today, on the back of your bulletin, there's um, uh, information about Wednesday night. We have with us this week Pastor Bob and Pastor Jacques from Haiti. They're both pastors there. For those of you that have been to Haiti, you've probably met at least one of them, if not both of them. And they're here this week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So Wednesday night, we're hosting a dessert potluck here to just hear about their ministry and get to know them and talk about them. We support them as a church. We'd like to invite you to come out to that. You uh, you won't be disappointed. They're great, great, uh, great men. I've I've met both of them over in Haiti, actually, so I'm looking forward to seeing them. So that's this coming Wednesday night, okay? Dessert potluck, that means bring a dessert. And make sure it's a good one. Okay. Desserts are fattening. None of this. Never mind. You know what to bring. <laughs> let's uh, let's take a moment and pray for Tim and Marie Wood. You know, we've been praying. I haven't actually talked to her, but I've heard through numerous sources that her tumors, tumors are continuing to shrink. She has cancer, as you know. And, um, and she's actually on a new medication, and it's working. And so uh, we've prayed for lots of people and have seen God's work, haven't we? So let's lift her up in prayer. Father, we do lift up Tim and Marie. <clears throat> Lord, um, we do know the seriousness of this, that apart from your intervention, um, her days are numbered short. We are rejoicing, Lord, that she's feeling good and that the tumors are shrinking. And we pray, God, that you would continue that process, that you would just heal her of this. And Lord, we have many other people in our congregation. You know them. Um, many of them, our names are written in our bulletin here. Pray, Lord, that you continue to be mindful of our local church here and the people here. Continue to guide them as they learn to follow you. Continue to step into their lives with powerful grace when they need you, Lord. And show yourself to them in strong ways. Father, I pray that you continue to help us as a nation. Bless our uh, government. Give wisdom to our leaders from the president all the way down to our local town councils. And just people making decisions every step of the way to help us to be a people. Give them, um, give them wisdom. Help them to be a people of peace. And uh, help them to guide our country well. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, when you hear the command to love your neighbor, um, what do you think of? Do you think of your neighbor next door? One of the questions we're going to explore a little bit is, how many of you actually know your neighbors next door? Know anything about them? It's kind of interesting in my position. I know some of your neighbors better than you do. And uh, that's not a criticism. It's just kind of a fun thing. So I get, I have spies all over the county. I get to hear about you guys through a lot of sources. And uh, do you think of your neighbor next door? Maybe you think of a coworker. Maybe you think of somebody, a stranger that you meet. How far does your thinking go out into this realm of neighboring? 
Because we are to we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Do you think, for example, of um, a Jew loving a Nazi? You ever go that far? How about a Palestinian learning to love an Israeli? They're neighbors. You think that far? A Christian loving a Muslim? You ever think about that? Especially those that perhaps might have more fanatical ideas than we're comfortable with, wanting to come after us. What would it mean to love them? So today we're going to talk about that. Um, We read the verse in Matthew 22. Let's put that back up there. We read it together as a church. Very important verse. Uh, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Mark asked the great question, how on earth is this a test? We're actually going to go to Luke, because Luke expands this whole discussion and really try to get a uh, grasp on why was it actually a test, because it was a test. But here in this uh, verse, we have a couple of thoughts. Um, The very last thing he says is all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We're talking the Jewish scriptures, what we refer to as the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. They all hang on these two verses. The concept of hanging was a rabbinic idea. The rabbis used it to capture, um, uh, to bring together these ideas in a simple thought that these two commands are the center of the Bible. Jesus takes 613 commands, that's how many commands there were in the Mosaic Law, and reduces them down to two. If you can grasp these two, you can grasp the ethics of the church. Because these are the ethics of the law. Um, They provide uh, a deeper understanding, if you will, of the law. They show how the law is fulfilled and what the law was designed to do. When I mention the law to you, many of you will give me a a kind of a negative assessment of it, which is common in our culture. Yet, when you look at what the scripture says about it, Paul says the law is holy, right, wonderful, just. David said, I love your law, Lord. And so you don't find anything in here about it being negative. Everything you find about the law is that it's a wonderful, wonderful um, set of commandments. And why is that? Well, it's really simple. In the ancient world, a world that was filled with a lot of superstition, uh, our God decided to speak and say, here's what I want you to do. In every other religion, every other country, every other God, you had to guess. No guessing with our God. He said, here it is. Here it is. Now, they had turned the law into something different. We're going to see that in a minute. And so, uh, but the law was good. The law was very good. It represented a loving God. One of my favorite uh, New Testament scholars, Scott McKnight, wrote a book called The Jesus Creed. He argues there in that book that a spiritually formed person, that's where we're all heading, is to be formed into the image of Christ. A spiritually formed person loves God by following Jesus and loving others. You can't have one without the other. They go hand in hand. For example, listen to these verses in 1 John. Whoever says, I know him. He's talking about God. Whoever says, I know God, but does not, uh, but does not do what he commands is a liar. That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. 
Or in verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 John, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Or 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you hate your brother or sister in your heart, you've already committed murder. John's repeating Jesus' teachings. Or 1 John 4.20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Is this strong enough for you? Don't throw tomatoes at me. This is your God who says these things. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother or sister, you're a liar. You're a murderer. Or further, he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. 1 John 4.21 So the question is, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And who is your neighbor? That's the question. To answer that, we're going to go to Luke chapter 10, where the testing and it's expanded, so we have more information to help us sort this out. In uh, Luke chapter 10, just like in the Matthew account, Jesus is being tested. In chapter 10, verse 25 of Luke, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So here, uh, Luke is very clear that he's testing Jesus. Now, the lawyer demonstrates proper deference to Jesus by, as a teacher by standing. That's what you were to do. Uh, that in no way shows his respect, as we're going to find out in just a minute. And I'm not sure that he had a lot of respect. But Jesus responds in a very interesting way. Verse 26, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? You're a lawyer. How do you read it? He answers the question by not answering the question. There's an ancient joke that goes something like this. Why does a rabbi answer a question with a question? Answer, why shouldn't the rabbi answer a question with a question? Um, on Pub Theology one night, a couple of years back, Jessie Bristol, I just love her to death, she said, why do you always answer our questions with a question? And I said, yeah, that's a great question. Why do you think I do that? And she said, well, because, ah! <laughs> Jesus is using a device here that we could do well to learn from. We could do well to learn from. You see, he's talking about something very serious. What is the question that he asked? How do I inherit eternal life? That is a very serious question. It may not have been that serious to the person asking it. I'm not sure. The clues help us to think that maybe it wasn't because they're to trap him, not to really learn. But in Jesus' mind, this is a very serious question. So he turns the tables on the lawyer and becomes an interrogator. And the reason he does this is question to this lawyer to begin to internalize it himself. If we just yak, 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 it rarely gets internalized. You know, when I teach undergraduates, uh, which I did for several years at Colorado Christian University, New Testament survey, I would start the class. You know how classes start in college. Many of you have been to college, right? Hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Pull out your syllabus. Just with that statement, you've already lost them. Okay? They're 18-year-olds. 
And so I did it differently. I would wait, just stand there. I didn't know any of the students. I'd just kind of watch them, trying to pick out in my mind who the troublemakers were early in the class. And as soon as the bell rang, you know, flip on the projector so they could see the computer on the screen. And up comes a verse, and God said to Saul, kill all the men, women, children, and animals. 1 Samuel 15. So I'd let them read it, and I'd say, uh, we're no different than radical fundamentalist Islam. We believe in genocide. That's the end of the class. They have no idea who I am. Of course, they're kind of looking at each other. What class are we in? And I just sit back and wait. Create space for the Holy Spirit to work. And invariably, one of them will say, that's, that's, that's not true, Dr. Howard. And I say, it's in your Bibles, look it up. So they start flipping. Hmm. And God said to Saul, kill all the men, women, children, and animals. By the way, that verse is repeated, that, that uh, command from God is repeated probably a dozen times in Scripture. So we believe in genocide. What would you do with it? I should do that in here just to see how you'd handle it. So what happens is they pretty soon start arguing with me. And they argue. And they argue. And they argue. And I get to watch one of the most fantastic things happen in education. After 30 minutes of arguing, their conclusion is, we don't know why you're wrong, but you are. (laughs) And it moved from opinion to conviction in one 30-minute period with an 18-year-old. They believe I'm wrong. And then I say, they say, we don't know why you're wrong, but you are. Great, pull out your syllabus. Wait, what's the answer? Come back next week. Next week, I throw another controversial verse up on the board. I never had trouble with attendance. They always kept coming back. And over the course of a semester, we'd begin to build a model for dealing with these complex passages because I want them to internalize it. I want it to go from here to here. And you don't do that by talking a lot. Sadly, that's the primary way we communicate to you here in church. Is talking a lot, <laughs> which is why we're doing lunches, to get you to begin to explore and ask questions and think about it. That's what Jesus is doing. He's leading this lawyer to begin to internalize the answer. So the lawyer brilliantly brings together two passages. Verse 27, the lawyer said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So... Uh, Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the lawyer, this is a very well-trained lawyer. He gets it. He understands it. He's been well-trained. He knew exactly which verses to put up there. The two verses that capture the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The first one captures the first tablet. The second commandment, love your neighbor, captures the second commandment about how we treat each other. He had, they had correctly pulled these two verses out as most important. So Jesus responds that he has answered correctly. Therefore, he should go do it. Now, you notice what he doesn't do at this point. He doesn't challenge the presuppositions of the lawyer. We're going to get to that in just a minute because he does do that, but not right here. But what he does do is he implies that the lawyer's not loving his neighbor. Or he wouldn't say, go do it and you'll live. Remember the original question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does he say? Do it, and you will live. The assumption is that you're not doing it. This, by the way, is the foundation behind the First John 1 passages. You want to live, truly live, 
then love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. So right here we have a lesson that's worth paying attention to. Having the right answers does not mean that one knows God and has life. There it is right there. It's far more serious than that. Far more serious than that. So the lawyer feels that sting of rebuke. Listen to what he says in verse 29. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, Okay, who's my, who's my neighbor? He feels it. So he wants to justify himself. He just got went on the defensive. Jesus' ploy worked. He put him on the defensive and got him. Got him in the corner. So he asks a legal question. Who is my neighbor? And yes, this is a legal question. This question has a long history of discussion in Jewish theology about who my neighbor is. For example, I'm going to read a couple of quotes. In the 2nd century BC, there was a man named Aristeus who wrote his brother Philocrates. This letter deals with, it's well known in New Testament studies, all of us that have studied New Testament uh, in seminary have had to look at this letter because this letter deals with why the Hebrew scriptures were written in Greek what we call the Septuagint which by the way was Paul's Bible Paul's Bible was a Greek Old Testament in this letter he states as he's writing to his brother God's very great commandment is that one shall honor one's parents next and close to it now listen carefully to the slight distinction in wording here next and close to it it comes that one shall honor one's Friends, not neighbor. Changes the language a little bit. How many are you familiar that the, I mean, are aware that the Dead Sea Scrolls are in town in Denver? Right? If you haven't seen them, I encourage you to go do so. I haven't been yet. Mark's already been. The staff's going to go. I am going in a couple weeks to go down and see it. It's worth seeing. In Cave One, a series of documents were found from the Qumran community, the Essenes, that there was a community of an ultra-strict Jewish sect there. And one of their documents instructed their followers that they were to love only the sons of light and were to detest the sons of darkness. So I quote these two just to give you a sample, small sample. There's many, many more that at this time in Jewish theology, they were beginning to define what it meant to be a neighbor, and it's not your enemy. Your friend is your neighbor. And so what we're going to see as Jesus gets into this story is that he's going to, in a very countercultural way, redefine this whole concept. So he's going to move this lawyer. He's going to displace him and move him to a whole different place in his thinking. That's the goal. In Jewish theology, just from these two quotes that we could find many others, um, it was the pious, observant, um, full pedigree Jew who gets to determine who falls into the category of the enemy and therefore who is not worthy of love. And this is what's behind the lawyer's question. He wants to know from whom can he safely withhold his love. That's what he wants to know. Now he thinks he's got Jesus in a trap and because here's why. If Jesus answers the question along historical contours as the Jews were discussing and arguing, then, uh, then the lawyer can proudly announce that he has done this and Jesus will have to give him praise. So if Jesus says your neighbor is your friend, he can say, yep, I've done that. But that's not what Jesus says. So he thinks he's got Jesus boxed into a corner and, of course, that happens often 
And Jesus surprises him and challenges the view and overturns it. So Jesus enters the parable of the Samaritan. I don't know why we call it the Good Samaritan. The word good is never mentioned. It's just the parable of a Samaritan. Okay, verse 30. Um, In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now remember, the first question is, what do we have to do to inherit eternal life? This is all in that context. The next question is, who is my neighbor? So Jesus is guiding him down this discussion point. So he uses a parable now to capture this idea and to begin to displace this uh, lawyer and the people that are listening. Both the priest and the Levite avoided the injured man. In Luke chapter 19, or uh, Leviticus chapter 19, the Mosaic law required one to help a fellow Israelite who was in trouble. Okay? The problem is that neither of these men, these religious leaders, know anything about this person lying in the ditch. They can't see his clothing. He's been stripped of his clothing. He's probably unconscious. He's not speaking. Can't hear the dialect. They know nothing about him. So they pass to the other side. Rather than come forward to assist, they both deliberately steer clear of him. This shows... uh, Pretty extreme callousness by leaving him to die rather than show love and mercy. This would have been acceptable if the man was not a Jew. How do they know? You see, they had framed the whole discussion around the first part of Leviticus 19, which talks about helping fellow Israelites, and they had skipped the second part of Leviticus 19, which talks about loving the foreigner. And so they had framed the whole discussion culturally. Your neighbor is your friend. So do you see how the lawyer is trying to trap Jesus? Who's the neighbor? And he expects Jesus to say, well, he's your friend. He's a fellow Israelite. And then the guy can say, I've done that. And that's not what Jesus does. This is at the point where Jesus surprises the entire crowd by introducing a Samaritan. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Okay, within this culture, all throughout the Old Testament, the references are so numerous, I'm not even going to give them to you. There's a phrase that occurs all throughout the Old Testament. Priests, Levites, and all the people. That was, the, that was the kind of the descending order of how things were taught and learned. Priests, Levites, ordinary people, Israelites. By the way, we have, a, we have a very similar thing in the way we construct church. Our elders and staff are very committed to living the Christian life in a way that models it for you. So that you can see it in our lives. When the elders hired me five years ago, yep, it's coming up on five years in two weeks. Um, they asked me, um, we talked about what my thought of the pulpit was, and I said, I am my own best example. A lot of times, Nancy, too. I'm my own best example. When I want to illustrate something, I often use my own life, and you know that. You've gotten to know me through that. It does two things it illustrates for you 
how I think faith should be lived out, and it also draws you closer because you have a connection with me. Okay? So our elders and our staff, elders, staff, the people of DCC, this is how we teach. This is why we pick godly people in these positions. So it's no different here. This phrase, priests, Levites, and all the people. So he says a priest came along, and he went to the other side. A Levite came along and went to the other side. Who's he expect? What do they expect to hear next? An average Israelite comes along. But that's not what he says. They're expecting him to bring a lay Israelite into the parable. Instead, he brings a Samaritan and stuns the crowd. Here's why. The Jews hated the Samaritans. By this time in world history, we have plenty of evidence to show the hostility from the Jews toward the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans were considered half-breed, if you will. This argument goes all the way back to the exile when they intermarried. So the Jews never accepted them as pure Jews. They wanted nothing to do with them. And who's the one that comes along and shows help? A Samaritan. That's who. The, The Samaritans were considered part of the outside group, if you will. Therefore, not worthy of love. They were a non-neighbor. A non-neighbor. In doing this, Jesus raises this bitter ethnic conflict and begins to give us a model of what it means to deal with conflict. Something we struggle with in our own culture today, isn't it? Boy, are we conflicted or what? As a nation. And it's just not along political lines. It's along ideological lines. It's along ethnic lines. It's along gender lines. It is astounding to me how divided our country is at the moment. And here we have a simple picture of what it could look like if we did it the right way. The cost to the Samaritan was very great in terms of time, effort, and money. First of all, he got down off of his own donkey and put the guy on it. So he walked. He paid, gave them two denarii. That's about three weeks worth of food. And says, don't worry, I'll come, back and take, I'll come back and cover the expenses if there's any more. Plus, he placed himself in a very dangerous predicament. If this man was a Jew, which he doesn't know if he is or not, if he, if he was a Jew and then dies, then the Jewish person had legal rights to come after him. So he's making himself vulnerable and culpable to help somebody. The lawyer is now in a tough spot. Because Jesus has completely redefined what it means to be a neighbor. And it's not your friend. It may be your next door neighbor because they live next door to each other. Listen to what happens, verse 36. Which of these three, this is Jesus asking, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus says, go and do likewise. A lot of things happen in these three, these two little verses here. <clears throat> the neighbor was originally viewed as an object. Who is my neighbor? Grammatically is an object. And Jesus flips it around. And by changing the question, Jesus now forces the lawyer to answer it from the perspective of the injured man. The neighbor is now seen as a subject who's actually doing the action. 
And so he's reversing the whole picture so that this lawyer, remember he's trying to get him to internalize it, is now answering the question from the perspective of the man laying in the ditch, not from a perspective of superiority. I get to choose who my neighbors are. The original question regarding inheriting eternal life is now answered, but it's answered from the perspective of the man in the ditch. When one needs mercy, group boundaries no longer matter. Right? If you're the one laying in the ditch, you don't care who it is that rescues you. What was the song we sang just a few minutes ago? I'm desperate for you. I'm lost without you. Now we know, and we sing this, to go to God and to each other. But how does your non-Christian friend know that? Now we're getting into the true heart of neighboring. How does your non-Christian friend know your true neighbor? How do they know? They're desperate. But how do they know to turn to God? They don't even know God. Where are they going to turn? I said last week when we talked about making disciples that I I tend to group people into two categories. Those whose worldview is answering their question. How do you tell somebody that has 2.3 kids, uh, a good-looking spouse, lots of money, um, that they need Jesus? Fortunately, that's very few of our people. Don't be fooled. This is an illusion. I talk to people all week long. The other group of people are those people whose worldview is no longer answering their question. I just found out I have stage four lung cancer. I have no idea. That's about three weeks ago. I was just, I was in breakfast. A friend, I just diagnosed with cancer. I don't know what to do. I said, where are you? I'm in Denver with the oncologist. When are you coming back right now? I said, great, I'll clear my schedule. We spent three hours together. That's being distraught. I just found out that my spouse, my husband or wife, have been cheating on me. That's happened recently. The worldview is no longer answering the questions. I just got fired from my job. I can't make my next house payment. That's traumatic. That's happened to me in recent weeks. This is what actually what happens with people in our county. Okay? Their worldview no longer answers their questions. And so they're desperate and they're lost. The very songs we sang very words we sang. Who are they going to reach out to? That's what it means to be a neighbor. To be the one that God puts right in their path so they can reach out to you. I said last week, you don't have anything to fear. Just open your eyes and be alert. God is going to route people through you and to you that you have what they need to hear. That's the person you're going to get. When one needs mercy, group boundaries, discrimination, ethnic conflict, all that goes by the side. You notice the lawyer cannot bring himself to say the Samaritan. Which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He could have said the Samaritan. He said the one who shows mercy. The one who had mercy. In Greek, the verb is the one who does mercy. It's the verb doing He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Jesus had him in the corner. And he can't do it. 
The religious people in the story are all shown to be dispassionate, while the outsider, the non-neighbor, is shown to be merciful. Okay, so what does this mean? I have a couple of thoughts to conclude with, just to stimulate the discussion as we get into lunch. Um, The concept of neighbor goes all the way from friends at one end to enemy at the other. It includes everyone that God brings in our path. Brings in our path. And I'll tell you someone he's brought into your path is the person sitting right next door. If they're not in your path, step into the path. Step into the path. There's no such thing as a non-neighbor. The neighbor is whoever God routes right into your life. And it could be an enemy. And honestly, I hope it is. What better way to get your enemy's attention than to surprise him with the one you least, he least expects to show mercy? A Samaritan. But one other thing, I said this answers a question about inheriting eternal life. You know, we, talk, we read all those John passages, and James states it this way, faith without works is dead. Right? Faith without works is dead. You can, you can tie this whole passage in Luke 10 together by the verb do. So, the movement passes through this word doing, 1025. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so he quotes the two verses, and Jesus says, do this... Love your neighbor and you will live. And then in verse 37, he asked him, who is the one who is the the neighbor? And he said, the one doing mercy. So Jesus says, go and do likewise. You cannot separate faith from doing. That's why James says, faith without works is dead. You say you believe in Jesus. I say, let me look at your life. We can look at your life and tell. If your faith is real. Genuine faith you to move forward. You become more affectionate, more caring, more gracious, more generous. That's what genuine faith does. It compels you to move further toward Christ-likeness. That's why James can say, genuine faith necessarily has works. Faith, sure, faith is what brings about regeneration. There's no question about that. But once that regeneration occurs, then your natural disposition is to move toward people and to love them more. If that's not happening, that means you either don't believe or you got sin in the way. There's not a lot of options. Because your natural disposition is now to move toward people and to start caring for them. And yes, it is scary. There's no question about it, which is why we're going to do lunch. To talk about it. What you'll find is that it's not scary at all. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is helping you reach your neighbor. The same power. And what you're going to find is loving your neighbor is an absolute blast because they're desperate. They're lost. They don't know to turn to God. They don't know who He is yet. They're desperate. They're lost. God wouldn't route them through your life if you didn't have what it takes. You with me? 
Come to lunch. We'll talk about it more. Father, thank you. Thank you for not turning your back on us. Although you should have. We confess that. Thank you for a love that is so pure, so powerful, so moving, that you stepped into our world. You put up with our sin, our messiness, our ugliness. Even though, as Paul says, there is no one who does good, not even one. And you found us. And you became to us that Samaritan because we're lying in the ditch. And you became to us a Samaritan who took care of us. Thank you. In your son's name, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. And uh, thanks for your generosity. You guys are great. My Lord, what love is this that pays?